you and I have actually been chatting over the last while, um, particularly in the context of these extraordinary times where we see basically that there are some very significant uh, opinions that actually range from how the investment world is actually changing to the impact of the Russian uh, war and in its narrower sense with Ukraine. And um, we decided that having a whole lot of customers, either basically of our family office uh, in, in Europe or, ba- or of Concilium Capital, where we have custom friends and, and family who manage their own affairs, that given the views that we have exchanged, that in fact we try and actually offer context that we are actually now looking at the investments of which we are collectively responsible for and with the hope that that will actually make some sense to the individuals that we've actually named and that effectively that roadmap will assist them in the decisions that they come to make over the coming weeks and months. Uh, With that in mind, what I'd like to do is really just open up with a broad overview, which includes the financial market response. So to some extent, what I'm doing is I'm almost starting at the end, because the questions that we actually arrive at is with markets having fallen anywhere between 10 and 15%, which is a response to the aggravation that war is actually causing, um, whether in fact that is appropriate, what does it look like now, where are actually the biggest risks? And um, it is interesting where, having done a little historical work on the way that markets have performed when there is a growth slump, which is what we are actually heading into, that it's relatively consistent that markets come off somewhere around 10 or 12%. Um, and yet, on the other hand, if in fact we are heading into a recession, um, effectively markets then tend to basically fall somewhere in the order of around 25%. So effectively, this discussion, I hope, is actually timeless. South Africa, and I know we still have some South African clients who are going to be exposed to this. Um, It's interesting that South Africa is only down by just under 10%, whereas world markets using the Morgan Stanley Index is down around 13%. Um, That South Africa is slightly more muted and it's really down around 9%. uh, Measured in dollars, it's only down around 7%, and really the difference basically being the benefits that the RAND has actually accrued as a result of commodities generally up very sharply, which is something of a windfall. Do you think that's an adequate description of what we intend to achieve this morning? Yes, Mark, um, absolutely. If we are able to look at what's happening in the geostrategic space, how that affects the oil price in particular and maybe other commodities. And and then also for me, the, the thing that's always probably the most important thing is what happens to interest rates because that is an underpin for all financial assets. And in particular, what happens to U.S. interest rates 
and maybe to a second effect what happens to European and Chinese um, markets. Let's start off um, just with a a basic discussion about oil. Um, I think it's quite interesting that oil is so significant right across the spectrum shortly after COP26. But be that as it may, that's actually my own little idiosyncrasy. The reality is that we are somewhat beholden to to the oil prices, which we clearly were intending to move away from as a source of energy and reduce. Um, Russia, if I'm correct, William, I know you looked at it in some detail, produces about 11% of the total world's oil supply. Yes. And the thing, Mark, just to emphasize, the more important number is of seaborne oil, because that's what you can really affect, the number is 11, 12%. So you're correct. Or seaborne um, crude exports. So just, I know we'll get to it a little later, but we will raise the issue of supply disruption. And I know that you've looked at that in a little bit more detail. But if I can re- move on with uh, with oil, I think that that what was interesting is looking back. So firstly, we've seen a very, very steep incline and 30% rise um, in the oil price measured largely by Brent. Um, within that context, it actually was useful to look back at previous episodes where there was some kind of oil price shock and have a look at at um, markets' responses to the oil price shock generally. And what was interesting is that where we've actually now seen a 30% increase in the price of oil, in previous episodes, we actually saw anything up to a 156% increase in the price of oil. So although we see it as, as somewhat problematic today, the reality is that the, the world over has experienced this before and it's experienced it in circumstances which could be felt uh, much more heavily and much more personally. Uh, I say that also because what we saw in previous episodes was uh, was the growth slump was already uh, more advanced before the oil price shock of previous episodes. And I'm referring here to the Iran-Iraqi war, which I think was around uh, 1990. That's the specific one where I actually read out um, some of the more pertinent details. So in a way, what we have is we actually have much complaint about how it feels hitting our pocket. But the reality is a 30% rise is not as significant as previous episodes. And we've also been in a position post the COVID pandemic where growth rates have actually been growing sharply. So, in fact, it is quite possible, and the numbers bear this out, that we are in a better position than we have been economically, we as basically the global economic position, than we have actually been in the past. And to add to the growth story um, in the West in particular, incomes have risen quite a lot during these COVID times in, in the West, in the in US and Europe because of fiscal expansion and all sorts of transfers from government to individuals. So you have incomes which are much higher, which was kind of also driving inflation before this war. 
Um, so absolutely, I agree with you where in this period, oil might be up, but income levels are higher. Um, so the, the, the negative impact you'll have on, on a higher oil price is muted. Definitely agree there. Over time, what has happened, especially in places like US and Europe, the, there's a calculation they always make about how many barrels of oil you need for a certain amount of GDP. And that number has been going lower and lower and lower over the decades. There's an anecdotal number which I saw just the other day, which, which measured prior to the oil price spike, what percentage of personal consumption expenditure uh, was made up by oil or fuel. And that number was around 7% prior, but as, as a result of higher wages, it effectively has come down to just over 5%. So it's, it, 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 it is not a point which basically was lost on me when you initially raised it. So thank you for that. Completely agree uh, with you and the thesis, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the increase in oil and therefore fuels will feed into transport and therefore fuel and then a lot of things. Um, but yes, overall, the theme is right that the impact is less than in previous oil crises. Before we sort of move on a little bit to what is keeping us all awake at night, uh, what I want to do is really just draw from you the impact of higher oil prices at a time when inflation was already actually becoming problematic. So I wonder if you wouldn't talk to me for a moment or two about the difficulty now of particularly central bankers around the world. And the one obviously which is the big play is the United States. The thought really is that, that oil goes up at a time when inflation is already problematic. Uh, there was a time when, in fact, central bankers and particularly the Fed were talking about interest rates as actually being transitory and temporary. And due to their mandate, and we'll talk about their mandates in a short while, that effectively they are pressed either politically or necessity to actually deal with, with interest rates in a way that actually would slow um, the rate of inflationary increase. And so I wanted you to talk to that point because it essentially is going to be the driver of whether we actually see markets being able to slow and taking account of the limited impact that interest rates will have on inflation. It was difficult for central banks before this war in Ukraine and the resulting increases in commodity prices. It's even tougher now because there was a little talk about stagflation, which is when you have growth slowing and inflation going up before the war. And now I think that is even coming to the fore even more, so making central banks work even harder. And just to set the scene again, growth was strong even for countries like Europe, which are usually sluggish to get out of um, a downturn. We're having very high growth. I mean, I'm in Ireland. The GDP growth last year in Ireland was 13%. That's the official number. 
and that's a recovery from 2020. But Irish GDP is usually misstated because there's a lot of multinationals that distort the numbers. So if you strip out the multinationals, the real GDP growth was something like 6%, very, very high. U.S., very, very high. Interestingly, people were worried about China. What was encouraging was that January, February, Chinese GDP growth numbers and investments in manufacturing, which is what they usually do when their GDP is in trouble, they accelerate investment, infrastructure investments, manufacturing investments, even real estate, which was a big problem last year, seemed to to stop falling, if I can put it that way. So that was the scene. The Chinese story is a bit complicated now because of COVID and possible sanctions and ties to Russia. So that's a bit murky. But what I'm saying is that growth has been very, very strong and inflation has picked up as a result. Goods inflation was the first one to go up last year. Um, That seems to have started coming down before the war. Again, everything I'm saying is pre-war. Service inflation, including labor costs, were a bit sticky. That was a concern. And that's what I think the central banks were looking at. Since the war, everything has kind of been turned upside down because goods inflation will start to pick up again with energy costs and commodity costs um, going up. The response there from the market, if I can say that, before the war and even up until maybe a week or so ago, the market is pricing in quite a lot of interest rate increases in the U.S., I just want to introduce a measure and then it will actually perhaps give a little context to uh, one part of the discussion. So effectively, what I was doing was actually looking for indicators um, of which would flag recession. And so what was highlighted were one, basically the yield curves, uh, two were the high yield spreads. Uh, the third is dodge the bullet bank shares, which seem to have actually been doing quite reasonably. And then the last one was really the behavior of copper and gold. But I know the one that you raised with me, which I know that you watch very carefully, is yield curves. And so in the context of what you were discussing, um, can you tell us what yield curves are telling us about the near and medium future? The market in terms of interest rate futures in the U.S. is fully pricing in seven rate increases for the next two years. So um, 25 basis point increases at each of the meetings, including um, the March meeting, which is imminent. Um, Longer dated interest rates are a bit um, all over the place. When the war started and um, a week or so into the war, U.S. 10-year interest rates actually increased in price and the yield went down. When that happens, it signals potentially there could be recession coming up. What has happened recently is that interest rates have started going up again. So ignoring what is happening with the war and what could happen, but bringing forward what the central bank should be doing, i.e. increasing rates. So it's a very, very difficult situation, Mark, and it's not all that clear um, with how the market is pricing and inflation, interest rate increases. Um, As a side note, um, um, 
for a few years now, I can say two, three years, there has been a pickup in interest in treating the Chinese bond market as a safe haven. Um, and Chinese 10-year government bonds over the past two, three years have come from 4.5% to currently 2.8%. It's interesting that during this war period, there's been little volatility in the Chinese government bond market, very different to what's happening in their equity market. Thank, thank you, William. Um, so, William, I want to, what I want to do before we move on is actually really just reiterate what I think is, is the highest risk that we actually face, and that is that the American um, Federal Reserve mandate is price stability. So in actual fact, irrespective of a transitory nature, irrespective of the inability for interest rates to have a major or have an impact on the oil price, uh, if, it would seem to me, and that is with the knowledge that in fact the Federal Reserve Board meets tonight and tomorrow um, if we are actually sitting in either Europe or South Africa, uh, that effectively uh, it, it is a very, very interesting time to be aware of how the American Federal Reserve responds in the rate environment. Now, we'll come back to that basically towards the end of our discussion uh, as we plan to, but what I want to do now is actually really just talk about a little about the geopolitical and geostrategic position. And I know that there are some reasonable differences between your view and my view. Um, certainly, I know that one thing we do agree on entirely is that the consequence is going to be a massive humanitarian catastrophe, which we are seeing unfold as we actually speak, um, which will have a major impact on on, on Europe particularly. Um, however, your view is, is one that, uh, that the Western capitalist system um, has a value system which basically is less attuned to the needs of humanity and more attuned to actually advancing individual territorial interests. I'm not even sure where I stand on that, Mark, but not as strong as you put it, because I think the Western capitalist system, economic system, is the strongest because it's flexible, it's open, and it adjusts to a lot of things quite well. And history, the recent history, has, has proven that right. Closed systems, um, if I can say Russia is closed, for example, or, or even um, a, a version of what's going on in China, are prone to make bigger mistakes because of just the way um, the structure of the economy uh, economies work. But, I mean, we can go on and on about that. So let me bring it back to Ukraine and Russia, but I won't speak too long, just very briefly. I think the West potentially could come out stronger the West as in led by the United States. I think the Russia might have miscalculated in terms of how much they can come together. I think the Chinese 
will also benefit massively from this because they will be able to pick up cheap Russian assets. Russia, in my view, was never a strong power. They always think they are, but they are not. They they cannot sustain uh, um, um, wars or occupation as they are maybe doing in Ukraine because their economy simply cannot support it. And that's why I think the West can behave the way they are re-sanctions against Russia. The sanctions are extremely aggressive um, against Russia. Yeah, so Mark, that is kind of my overall view. Personally, um, I have, as you know, looked into some of the Russian history, um, looked back basically to some significant figures within Russian history uh, from uh, uh, Ivan the Great and Ivan the Terrible, and I'm inclined to believe that, in fact, um, since the Second World War that we actually have well, I believe that, in fact, we've been, we as a younger generation have been lucky in that we almost are in, are inclined to believe that the world is at relative peace. Whereas in actual fact, when one measures um, or looks back at actually serious conflict and territorial conflict, this peaceful period is actually more an exception than the rule. The disappointment for me is, and I listened very carefully, and it's certainly something which uh, I will write a note uh, on when we send a few charts in support of what we're discussing. If, in fact, uh, I was self-deceptive in believing that, in actual fact, humanity was were taking their responsibilities for a more gentle world more seriously, that although I can actually understand and, and, and sympathize with the Russian and particularly Putin's frustration with around the Ukraine and around the Ukraine that actually was uh, siding with the West and was becoming Americanized. Uh, the fact that in fact that there was a err to arms and that there have been so significant um, casualties as a direct result, I attribute to two things. One, disappointment that people actually feel that they, that that is still an option. And obviously I say that in the context of the nuclear non-proliferation agreements. So William, I think that if we were to really move um, a little forward on, on um, where we're going with this conflict is again, I think that I understand the West's position to actually allow Ukraine to play out without actually upping the odds. I acknowledge and accept that it would appear that Putin has uh, has lost the war, although he will continue the battle. And I and and so it is. It, it is with some sadness that I think that we will see this war continuing for some time. What is useful, as opposed to actually sentimental, is that that none of this is going to actually stop a repositioning of geostrategic spheres of influence. And amongst those, we will now actually see how Europe. 
um, plays their hand into the future. The United States, who have actually done, done quite well in ensuring that the Allies and NATO have actually come together in a strong way. And then we actually see China, who, in my view, are actually playing the long game and in all probability will be the party that will be the one that actually mediates and finds a settlement if there is a settlement. And settlement is something that I think is is going to be a necessity, although that settlement won't preclude us from actually experiencing an additional arms race and a Cold War. But I think your interest here is to also draw down what are the impact of this at a more micro level. Why do I say, for example, China will benefit if there are threats of sanctions against China? That's probably the case short term. Uh, We don't know how that will play out. But on a bigger context, you know, Russia is a major commodity producer. If there are sanctions from the West against Russian commodities, except gas, we'll talk about that um, separately, who can the Russians really sell their commodities to? I mean, the likely big buyers are China and maybe to a small extent India. The rest are already supplied by the US and the Middle East and other energy and commodity producing countries. What is likely to happen also from what the West has done, re-sanctioning Russia's central bank, which I think is was an extremely aggressive sanction move, effectively confiscating half of their foreign currency reserves, um, which is a very aggressive move. So what will happen, I think, is that the Russians still need to operate. So they will start selling commodities to China, and they'll, they will be trading outside of the U.S. dollar system. So the yuan could probably, or the Chinese currency, could probably see more increases in use, um, which strengthens China for a medium or long term. One of the things in history where when comp- countries are, are short of dollars is like what happened with Iraq when they were sanctioned years ago during Saddam's time, is you can sell your commodities for a discount for other things. And and the Russians could do that. They can sell oil at a discount. They can sell their commodity at a discount, but they won't get dollars for it. They can get gold for it, or they can get yuan for it, for example. So that strengthens in a long way um, China. The other thing I wanted to talk about, about the geostrategic issue is how much Europe is dependent on Russian energy imports. 70% of non-domestic European diesel comes from Russia. Um, That's a big number. And I think in the energy space, gas and fuels are more important than oil um, in terms of energy. And if we talk about gas, you've all had the numbers, the Europeans rely 40% of um, energy or gas in particular, sorry, comes from Russia. Austria are 70% completely dependent on Russia for their gas needs. I think the number in in Germany is also quite high and then it tapers off for the rest. So that cannot be shut off. That cannot be shut off like within a week or months. The Europeans need that. And I think that's why you saw um, Germany in particular, preventing um, the Europeans from banning Russian oil and gas. 
the Americans have already banned um, um, Russian oil and the British as well. But I'm saying that the fuel and gas needs are critical to how the European economy functions. And as much as I've said that, I still think the risk to a recession in Europe are higher than the U.S., probably over 50 percent that we might have a recession this year because of this high dependence on Russia and the fact that energy and commodity prices are so, so high. The Europeans can't just switch off Russian energy. German industry runs on diesel and gas, and most of that is coming from Russia. So, William, I want to make one or two points on what you've actually raised, and then I'm going to try and actually move us to what the risks are where we are now, um, and then perhaps try and draw this to a close, is one, um, I'm acutely aware that, that Germany has actually moved their position and aligned with the West. And I have seen the phraseology used that the, that that particular move in the context of of the geopolitical negotiations was Germany's Auschwitz moment. Um, I can't tell you who, in fact, actually mentioned the, or used the phrase, but I have actually heard it used in that context. The second issue is that. A lot of what we, in fact, are actually perhaps exchanging as ideas gives me the very real sense that the negotiation is already taking place. In other words, we may not see it because we would like to actually recognize terms and recognize settlement. But the reality is all countries already actually know the risks that they actually face. And effectively, the little exchanges, whether it is the West actually ensuring or NATO ensuring that that the no-fly zone is actually protected, that already is actually concession, whether whether it is framed on the basis that they don't want escalation or not. So I, I wanted to mention that. I also wanted to mention that goods inflation versus service inflation is much higher in Europe than it is. The reverse is the case in the United States. The United States actually experience a greater proportion of goods uh, of service inflation relative to goods inflation as a percentage. So I think that we that it's very likely that it, that. Europe is already on the threshold of recession. The question is how deep. And on that note, perhaps I can actually just take us through to the middle part of our discussion, which is, well, what is the risk now? Markets already actually have come off in the order of 10 to 12%. Are we going to see a further fall or are we likely to see uh, some kind of Markets trying to gain a footing around where we actually are now. And on that end, I raise as the highest risk for investment being how does the Fed actually respond given their mandate to rising inflation? Now, I don't know if you've got ideas, but obviously over the next few days, we will actually see what it is. And perhaps on that note, um, which you'll share with us if you have that view, we can conclude the first of, of the series. It's an extremely difficult situation for the U.S. Fed, what decision they are going. It's also not going to be just 
increasing interest rates, it's going to be the messaging around it. For example, we are increasing rates now, but what's happening in Ukraine and potentially in China is clouding our judgment. Therefore, we'll be more data dependent, blah, blah, blah. That's um, Fed speak. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to read. And therefore, what will happen to markets? Outside of the war, the market was pricing in quite a lot of interest rate increases. And therefore, if we did not have the war, the market will probably would have stopped falling right at this level and wait to see the impact of the rate increases and the messaging around it and probably start going up, interestingly, with rate increases. But with the war coming in, with inflation not coming down anytime soon, it clouds the market's reaction to um, rate increases and the messaging around what the Fed says. So very difficult, Mark. I don't have a crystal ball at the moment, but that those are kind of the two pulling forces. And again, I, I want to emphasize how China might reverberate to the West uh, in terms of affecting their economies and therefore markets. I have a view which is based on looking back at how the Fed actually responds. And quite often I have seen, at least in my opinion and some of the commentators that I actually think have got robust views, that the Fed has a greater propensity to make mistakes at times like this. So I think on the one hand, um, I'm of the view that one be fairly careful. For a number of our clients who are invested in any of our funds, I also want to mention that all of our funds are well in excess of 50% liquid. So, in fact, we actually are very well defended against basically further falls in the market. And as you know, William, I'm of the opinion that later on this year, irrespective of what happens to rates in the short to medium term, that in fact there will be a reversal of the kind of decisions which will impact in the short term. And perhaps on that note, um, if you'll agree that effectively we should look to conclude and I hope that the discussion that we've had reverberates and actually talks to the audience that we are going to um, send this to and um, and we will put a little bit of a note on tag on to the podcast of where they can reach us for any further information. So William, thank you very much. Enjoy the good weather that you are experiencing, albeit overcast. And I'll head back to a sunny uh, autumnish day in the Cape. Thank you, Mark. Thanks.